Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I'm speaking to you now on my final day of self-isolation as I recently came down with a touch of the old covid I'm over the worst of it now, but for a few days there, it felt like I'd been fighting Mike Tyson in a tumble dryer, and I'm still feeling a bit chesty Morgan, but it could have been so much worse if I wasn't fully vaxxed. Get vaccinated, kids. And long time no see. My apologies for such a long gap between episodes. The last one was our Christmas special, but there's been a lot going on. As well as being knocked sideways by COVID, there's been some boring technical stuff going on behind the scenes with a new website and a new podcast hosting company. So if you didn't receive this episode in your normal seamless fashion, you might need to resubscribe. The updated RSS feed, should you need that, can be found in the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And the other thing that's been causing a delay, which is much more exciting, is that we're launching a new podcast and it's been taking up a fair amount of time. The new podcast is called Kino Quickies and is not only a podcast but also a series of screenings of 1930s quota quickie films plus Q&As with special expert guests. It's hosted by me and Dr Lawrence Napper of King's College London. Lawrence was a guest on Soho Bites a few episodes back and this will all take place in the pleasant surroundings of the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square. The first one is on Sunday, March 13th. I've made a preview episode of the new podcast, which you can hear now at kinoquickies.com. And in the show notes there, you'll also be able to read about the films we're screening, find out who our special expert guests are, and of course, book tickets for the shows. And we would love to see you there. That's at kinoquickies.com. But back to Soho Bites. A few months ago, a friend of the show sent me an email asking if I'd heard of a West End musical set in Soho called The Crooked Mile. It turns out the show had had a short West End run at the Cambridge Theatre on Seven Dials a few decades ago and closed on January 30th, 1960, never to reopen. I had not heard of this show, but our first guest today certainly had. That guest is John Snelson, who has recently left the Royal Opera House where he was head of publishing and interpretation and is currently writing a book about British musical theatre. And John told me about another lost Soho musical from 10 years before The Crooked Mile. We'll be hearing from him in a few moments. 
And one of the characters in The Crooked Mile is called Cora, described in the blurb as a part-time street girl, which is what gives us our tenuous link to this episode's film, as one of the film's leads has that very same profession. Turn the Key Softly, from 1953, is set across the course of one day and follows three very different women on their first day of freedom after their release from prison. It stars Yvonne Mitchell, Kathleen Harrison and a very young Joan Collins as our three ex-convicts grappling with life on the outside as they battle their own particular demons. I was joined by the writer Ming Ho to talk about Turn the Key Softly and you can hear that conversation in the second half of the show. So it turns out there's a mini, mini sub-sub-genre of theatre which is musicals set in Soho. Expresso Bongo and Things Ain't What They Used To Be are still reasonably well known today. In fact, Expresso Bongo is a much-loved film and was the subject of episode 6 of Soho Bites. But I've recently discovered two other Soho musicals, which, for dramatically overblown purposes, I'm calling The Lost Soho Musicals. These are Ace of Clubs, which ran for a short time in 1950, and The Crooked Mile, at the other end of that decade, which opened in 1959. Apart from a brief revival of Ace of Clubs at the tiny Union Theatre in Southwark in 2014, both of these shows have been mostly forgotten. But why is that? Were they just not good enough to survive in the cutthroat world of West End Theatreland? To find out, I spoke to John Snelson, author of a soon-to-be-published book on British musical theatre. The book covers the period from Noel Coward's Bittersweet to Lionel Bart's Oliver, which is roughly 1929 to 1960, so who better to talk to about this subject? We had hoped to meet in person, but what with me having COVID and self-isolating and all that, our plans were forced to change and I met him online. I began by asking John to tell me about the first of these two shows, Ace of Clubs. Ace of Clubs is a show by Noel Coward. He wrote the book and the music and the lyrics. It is entirely his conception. And it opened in 1950, and it takes place in a nightclub in Soho. The characters involve an onstage performer. Um, she is very attractive and the star of this little nightclub show. And a sailor on shore leave who is very smitten with her in the audience. And they end up getting together. Of course, the way they get together takes them through the local criminals and a stolen diamond necklace uh, and a certain amount of chasing around, a little bit of a fight, uh, the odd gunshot and a rush out for safety into Soho Square at night. So if you like, it's, um, it's a strange mixture of a very internal show to do with a nightclub that implies that it's in this bigger world that is somehow both glamorised and seedy at the same time. When the storm clouds are riding through a winter sky, sail away, sail away. It was received moderately well. It was not a success in the sense that everybody said it was great. In fact, the jury was out very much on it and I think this reflects the nature of the show and the time it was done. It's a period when there's a lot of searching around for what a musical could be. We'd had the influx of American shows coming in after the war with Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun and Carousel. 
there was a sense that there was a form of show which was livelier and upbeat and somehow modern. And really what it meant was we are projecting our idea of America onto the shows they send us. British shows were seen as more old-fashioned. The Noel Coward's previous shows had been operettas with historical settings, very much more to do with the gentry, very romantic. So what we can see in Ace of Clubs is that Coward is writing some material that fits that operetta style mode, but he's also putting in much more punchy, upbeat numbers that give a sense that it's now, it's more urban, it's more contemporary and they sit alongside each other. And they're brought together in a story that, again, mixes quite straightforward romance, but with a, a fringe coloring of the contemporary. And I think that what happens here is that we see in the audience response, people don't quite know how to judge it. It's not quite an old fashioned show, but it's not quite a new show. It's a weird transitional hybrid of a show. Bye. Juvenile delinquents, juvenile delinquents, happy as can be. We waste no time on the wherefores and whys of it. We like crime, and that's about the size of it. People say that films demoralise us, lead us to a life of shame. Mental doctors try to civilise us, psychoanalyse us, blimey what a game. They don't know how to treat us, for if they should beat us, that would never do. When they say go steady, we'd be answer ready. And the same to you. Noel Coward doesn't seem like the correct person really to bring that world to an audience. It seems like he's out of his comfort zone, really. Yes, you're correct in saying that. He only went back to this style of musical to some degree with his last show, Sail Away. He followed up Ace of Clubs with After the Ball, which was an operetta-style piece based on Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's fan. So, yes, he put his toe in the water, decided that it, the water was a little bit too hot for him, and probably went back to the comfort yeah. zone. <laughs> and I think that partly this represents the timing of, of Coward. When you see, look at it from a generation point of view, that you have Noel Coward and Ivan Novello as the two big musical theatre writers. They straddle World War II. They make their names in the period before, the decade before. They carry on writing the decade after. But when we start to see the really big changes in the presentation of the British musical, in music and in drama and in style and character, it's really with the generation that made started making their names after the war. So there's a generational shift. Coward was ahead of his time, but also slightly out of his time when he was writing Ace of Clubs. There was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence and lived in crooked style. He met a crooked cat who had a crooked mouse. They all live together in a little crooked house. And then, nearly ten years later, we have this second lost Soho musical, The Crooked Mile, 
which seems on the surface to be slightly kind of Lionel Bartish. It's a very interesting comparison with The Crooked Mile because the two shows, Ace of Clubs and The Crooked Mile, are ostensibly set in the same place. The biggest change for me is that Ace of Clubs is primarily inside a club in Soho, which means it actually really could be anywhere. Whereas The Crooked Mile actually uses much more of the sense of place and character. It takes place on the streets. It takes place with a much wider range of ordinary people, not nightclub clientele and nightclub performers. It's a very different type of milieu. And we can see here that focus, the same as things ain't what they used to be, which was actually not that much earlier with Stratford East in February 1959. And Expresso Bongo, we should remember, is, is 1958. So actually, they're all hitting on the same thing at the same time uh, and reflecting this interest, which you mentioned Lionel Bart, comes through Stratford East of we are not looking at people on stage as being rarefied and different and arch. Somehow they have to look a bit more like us. And this is where we go from the clientele inside the nightclub into the people on the streets outside. So the Crooked Mile fits in with an entire pattern of shows that were happening at this time. If I ever fall in love again, it'll be with someone just like you. I don't say that I'm in love again, but on the day you came my way, I knew. The Crooked Mile, of course, has been overshadowed by the success of Lionel Bart and the Stratford East contingent with things ain't what they used to be. Uh, going on, of course, to Oliver. What the Crooked Mile seems to do is pick up on another strand that was going on at the time in terms of musical theatre presentation. So it has the ideas of what you think of as that Bart East End approach, but it's got a style that blows up the musical into something much more romanticised. And critics at the time made parallels with West Side Story, which sounds really bizarre to us now. But West Side Story had only recently opened and what I think was being commented on was the idea it was on the streets and it was urban. Or you get elements of Gershwin and Porgy and Bess and I think one way of thinking about The Crooked Mile is it's trying to do for Soho what Porgy and Bess had done for Catfish Row. And the music in The Crooked Mile tends towards something that for me is a little bit inflated on its emotion. It is signalling very hard, big, serious emotion in certain numbers. And this is very unlike the way that you get with Expresso Bongo or Things Ain't What They Used To Be, where they're really going for straight for the jugular. So the Crooked Mile for me is, is actually romanticising and glamorising the Soho streets. I'm the girl with the superior the show did produce one quite big star in the end, Millicent Martin. She became very well known to the British public through her topical uh, calypsos, would you call them? It was various songs that she yeah, did. Yeah, on That Was A Week That Was. Exactly. What part did she play? She played this very engaging character called Cora, 
Uh, and Cora is um, a lady who earns her living on the streets. Okay. And the interesting thing about her is that she's very sorted with her life. She's the tart with the heart who's not quite what you think. So the reason she gets involved in the story is that she wants to retire from her life. She wants a nice middle-class life gardening in the suburbs. So she spends her money on buying gardening equipment. She stores the gardening equipment at Sweet Ginger's Ironmongery. When a bit of rivalry develops between two leading gang members, the result is that Sweet Ginger's Ironmonger shop gets bombed. <laughs> Cora is, of course, incensed by this because she's lost all her gardening equipment. This then, of course, leads to a strike in Soho protesting about the way that people are treated. So you have the prostitutes on the streets along with the Barrow people and everybody else complaining about the crime in the area as a strike. Millicent Martin's character was automatically going to be a really great one to play with a great part in the storyline. And of course, she did get one of the best numbers in the piece. And it's the one where she sings about her uh, desire to go and live in the country and look after plants and none of her part of that. And it's a song called Horticulture. And of course, it leads towards one joke. At the very end, it's musically set so that she says that she wants to be known as a It's sort of charming and disarming, as well as being sort of slightly not quite, you know, but it's a brilliant, brilliant number. Is Soho a particularly suitable location for a musical? Is it, is it that kind of edge, the clubland, the crime, that, that give it a sort of inherent drama? It's a curious one to consider. A lot of popular musicals revolve around the idea of a defined community. So if you think of West Side Story, Carousel, Oklahoma, you can immediately see that they take place amongst a certain group of people in a defined space. So I think it's that idea that you get good drama from characters who in some way are forced to interact in quite strong and significant ways in their lives. So there's that. Soho, I think, gets attention because there's a, quite a strong social change that happens after World War II, and the values in Britain are beginning to be challenged and changed. Remember, there's a sort of an ultra-conservatism that comes in in the 1950s, which leads to more clampdown on prostitution, um, more uh, observance of what we would think of as decent family values at the time. So I think we've got this social battle going on and Soho becomes a really great way to pull all these things together. You can also look at the sense of being in a big city with lots of potentials of high and low class meeting, which is what you get in Ace of Clubs. Um, you also get it in uh, The Crooked Mile. So it's that sense of, if you like, the melting pot idea at that time for a set of themes that were particularly ripe for working out in dramatization. So I think it was in the air, but the musical was well placed to draw on those strands of community and location. 
My thanks to John Snelson for coming on the show to share his knowledge and expertise. His book on UK musicals is due to be published later in the year. And when a date has been confirmed, I will tweet that to you. So make sure you're following us on Twitter on at Soho. I put some links in the show notes containing information about the two lost Soho musicals, including posters and some production shots. And these can be found at our newly revamped website, SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Three. Three. Discharge. 1953's Turn the Key Softly begins at just before 8am in the forbidding surroundings of Holloway Prison. It's release day for three very different women. Jarvis? Stella, played okay. by Joan Collins, has served a short sentence for soliciting. William? Mrs Quilliam, played by Kathleen Harrison, is an old lag who we soon learn has done numerous short stints in Holloway for petty pilfering. Marsden? And our most unlikely convict, Monica, played by Yvonne Mitchell, is a seemingly well-to-do middle-class young woman who was inside for, of all things, burglary. I remember this room when I arrived here. Just the way they took all my own things away. This is where we get them back again, we hope. Plenty of time yet. You'll be discharged at eight o'clock, not one moment before. Not one second after. Yes, miss. One dress. Each of the three female prisoners has a significant male partner on the outside. Mrs Quilliam cannot wait to see her Johnny again. Monica has slightly more ambivalent feelings about meeting David, the man who was the cause of her being banged up, and Stella... Stella has Bob, an honest and trustworthy bus conductor. It's important how I look today. I'm going to get married. Married? You? Yes, me. And why not? He wrote and said he'd wait if it was six years instead of six months. And he has. Now, you've got to check these lists. You'll get back everything you had when you came in. With plans to meet up that night at the Monte Cristo restaurant in the West End, the women nervously await the moment the key turns in the main prison door. There you are, ladies. London. The biggest city in the world. It's all yours. The women go their separate ways and we follow them in parallel over the next 12 hours. Outside the gates, Stella is met by Bob and they're soon making plans to marry next Wednesday when Bob has a day off work. Until they're lawfully married, though, decency must prevail, so Bob gives Stella three quid so she can rent a room for herself in Canterbury. Having three whole pounds in her purse proves to be a huge temptation to Stella and it's not long before she finds herself drifting towards the posh shops of the West End and her street-walking former colleagues. Mrs Quilliam heads over to her part of town, Shepherd's Bush, where she manages to persuade her reluctant former landlady, played by Thora Heard, to let her have her old room back 
and she is soon reunited with her beloved Johnny. She is sorely tempted to steal a small item from the shop and we're pleased when she manages to resist the urge, but a visit to her daughter's house in White City is less successful. Her daughter, Lily, is cool with her to the point of off-handedness and we're given the impression that Lily is ashamed of her mother. Hello, Granny. Hello, Norma. My, I shouldn't have known you. You have grown. It's a long time since you came to see us, Granny. Yes, I suppose it is. Have you been to the seaside all this time? Yes. Yes, what is it? Hello, Lily. Oh, you didn't tell me you were coming. Well, I only come out this morning. You ought to have written first. I know, I'm sorry. Pity you had your journey for nothing. We're just going out, as you can see. Can't put it off. It's a tea party. Very important. Oh, Mum, can't Granny come to the pictures with us? No, dear. I'll let you know when it's convenient for you to call. Or better still, you back at the same place? Yes. All right, I'll look you up there. Send you a postcard to tell you when. Goodbye for now. Monica arrives at her friend's flat where she's arranged to stay until finding her feet. She plans to spend the day job hunting before meeting up with Stella and Mrs Quilliam in the evening and does do this with some success but then encounters David, played by Terence Morgan, the unscrupulous ex who got her into trouble in the first place. At first, she wants nothing to do with him, consenting to see him only so that she can reclaim some of her belongings. But after lunch and some declarations of undying love from David, she falls back into his arms and into his bed. Happy, darling? Don't. The women meet at the restaurant as arranged and then go their separate ways to live the rest of their lives as best they can. Turn the Key Softly was directed by Jack Lee and written by him and his producer, Morris Cowan, based on the novel of the same name by John Brophy. It's unusual to have three female leads, especially at this time, and it's testament to the skill of these three men that they have written strong female characters who are well-rounded with distinct, relatable personalities and with complex interior lives. Despite their actions and their previous behaviour, we never judge them harshly and our sympathies are, for the most part, with them throughout their long day. The film was well received on release and the only negative remarks that were generally made about it was that it relied a little too heavily on coincidence to bring various threads of the plot together. This is not something that particularly bothered me. There are two glaring moments of coincidence. The first is when a man that Monica has encountered on the tube that morning then reappears outside the swanky restaurant at night and the second is later on in the very final scene when Monica happens to bump into Mrs Quilliam's Johnny. This stretches credulity a little bit but it feels like a fitting end to what has turned out to be quite a harrowing day. To explore Turn the Key Softly, I met up, in a virtual way of course, with Ming Ho. Ming is a playwright and screenwriter who has written extensively for the stage and screen, both large and small. We had both attempted to read John Brophy's novel upon which the film is based, but only one of us, not me, had actually got to read it. At the time we recorded the conversation, my copy was still stuck in the post. I began by asking her if she was aware of the film before I'd asked her to come on the podcast. I'm going to get married. You've got a boy waiting for you. Marston. Marston. And now I want to wish you every happiness, Monica, and I hope you find someone to look after you. Did you ever doubt that I loved you? I'd seen it a few times. I mean, thanks to Talking Pictures TV, uh, which has become my go-to. 
And uh, I hadn't seen it before they transmitted it, but since it's been on, they've played it quite a few times. And I find myself watching it again and again every time because it's just so absorbing. I think the characters are really strong. And even if you know what happens, there's always something new to discover in it. And in preparation for this, we both went back to the source material, the novel. Mm. Well, we tried to, because <laughs> mm. my copy is <laughs> still in the post. But you did manage to read the novel, which is by John Brophy. And you've been telling me a bit about it before we start recording. Can you tell me, how does it compare to the book? The film is actually, in general, very faithful to the book. But I think, in a way, that's a tribute to the strength of the book because it's, it's a very cinematic book. It's very tightly structured. Um, I think John Brophy, uh, with whom I'd not been familiar at all before, had a journalistic background. Um, he, he, wrote, he was a prolific writer and he wrote a lot of um, works that were to do with his experiences in the First World War. But he was also a writer and critic um, for various newspapers and a, a journalist in general. And he also studied psychoanalysis. So I think he brings all of those um, experiences to the work, which, which actually is quite unusual for him because most of the things that he wrote were about the war or um, he wrote one other crime novel, I think, which was also made into a film. So this is quite an unusual departure for him. And yet it's very well structured as a, as a dramatic unity. It, it goes in 12 hours from 8am to 8pm on the same day. It has three characters who are given equal weight and we kind of um, move between their three stories equally in parallel throughout the whole film. So I think actually the screenwriters had an absolute gift because it was all there already and actually they, they needed to do very little to, to, to dramatise it. And I think it's quite interesting the things that they have done, which are unsurprisingly um, probably to, to change some of the strands to soften them slightly for a cinema audience because it was actually a very hard-hitting book of its day. The film is quite hard-hitting. There are some elements to the story that we can't give away for spoiler reasons, mm. but it does it does hit home quite hard. And, you, and you're saying the book is, is a bit more brutal than that even? Yes, I think, you know, for people who haven't seen it, we should just say that um, the basic synopsis is that it's one day in the life of three women who are released from Holloway Prison on the same morning. And they come out and this is the story of what they do on that first day and how their good intentions are challenged by um, the things that they come up against even in those first 24 hours. That's the whole crux of it, isn't it? Each one of them has their weaknesses mm. and they all face temptation. Stella is tempted by the glamour of life in Soho and the streets and the, the money that it provides really and the, and the, uh, the jewellery and the nice clothes. Granny is a compulsive. She's a kleptomaniac, isn't she? She can't. She can't resist stealing small items all the time. She she is. But I think the thing is that in in both the book and the film, I think you know obviously we get more of the interior life of all of them in the book. But I think the film transfers it as well as it possibly could be done, really, in a dramatization. But Granny Quilliam, played by Kathleen Harrison, she is a kind of kleptomaniac, but she's a very low level kleptomaniac. And it's kind of explained as we go along that she's not she's not stealing these things for, you know, selfish or greedy motives. A lot of the things that she does are motivated by fear because she's a very kind of timid character who has a fear of authority figures. So she always imagines that people are suspecting her of doing something. Mm. And in a way that makes her more susceptible to do it 
and then out of nervousness she will do something and then very often plead guilty to it even when she hasn't done it and we all our sympathies are always with granny quilliam aren't they yes i think so because she doesn't she doesn't have any kind of malice in her whatsoever um, and the things that she steals are kind of harmless and you know they're they're not expensive things they're just bits and pieces i think stella is an interesting character stella the prostitute because she is seduced by the glamour of what she can get but also that's the only life um, as far as we can tell that she is known in her adult life she's come to London like a lot of girls and she's tried to get by and then in getting by she's got used to a certain lifestyle that that easy money to her affords her so she has the chance when she comes out of jail of going straight because she has a decent man Bob. who is a bus conductor Bob who has asked her to marry him and he's waited for her during all of her time in jail and he meets her as soon as she comes out and that is literally her ticket, ironically, to, <laughs> to decency. And so that whole day is her struggle against her weaker impulses, which are it's much easier to make good money on the streets than it is to resign yourself to a lifetime living in Hackney as Bob's wife. Monica, who is the third character, is, is arguably the most interesting and complex because she's played in the film by Yvonne Mitchell, who is a very subtle and nuanced, um, very good actress. She is the character through whom really the film is seen ultimately because she is the most self-aware of all three of them. She has the most opportunity to turn over a new leaf because she's not a natural criminal. She has come from a life where she did have other opportunities and she has fallen into crime through her relationship with a man who in the film is called David, but in the book is called Gerald. And when she comes out, she has the dilemma of, again, whether she falls back into the life that she'd got used to with him or whether she stays strong and puts all of that aside. That's the storyline which has undergone most change between the film and the book. The book was much more frank uh, about Monica's inner life and her motivation and her relationship with that man in the book is, is much more um, ambiguous and much more culpable from her point of view. Because in the film, we do look at Monica and seeing her sort of being drawn back into David's orbit and think, what are you doing? Yeah. Clearly, clearly, clearly he's a wrong one. Terence Morgan for a second <laughs> must be a bad one because he's Terence Morgan. But yeah, I, I think it, it just, it just seems inex inexplicable. Why, why does she not just keep him at arm's length? Yeah, and, and I can... I can cast some light on that. I mean, I think the thing is that, that that character, David, David is a really interesting character in himself, who I think you can see that there are parallels with, with other um, characters that we've got to know since, such as the real-life David Blakely, who is the Ruth Ellis boyfriend who was murdered by Ruth Ellis, yeah. who we're now familiar with from um, the film Dance with a Stranger and other dramatisations. And also, I would say, there's also precedent in Terence Rattigan's um, play and then film The Deep Blue Sea, where there's a character called Freddie, who is, again, a kind of RAF public schoolboy who's kind of fallen on hard times in civilian life and kind of sponges off Hester, who's the woman who would do anything for him. So I think that that archetype must have been a very familiar character to post-war audiences mm. in real life. There would be lots of these kind of public school characters who were used to being seen as heroic in the war in their, in their smart uniforms, who then came out and weren't really qualified for anything. And some of them were ne'er-do-wells. And, and this is kind of quite an interesting exploration of that. But I think the, the difference between the film and the book is that, um, and this partly explains why we, we're so frustrated with Monica in the film, is that in the book, 
Monica isn't necessarily going straight when she comes out straight off. Her motivating factor on that first day is that she seeks out Gerald in the book because she wants her revenge. She wants the clothes that she left in the flat. Interesting, yeah. Um, she wants the money from the job that they did, which was the job before right. she got Right, and so up. she is a criminal in that sense. Yeah, then. so basically, although he has got her involved in it, and it is true that he has corrupted her, um, she has been a much more willing participant in it until the point that she got arrested and she has come out looking for redress. So she's not this kind of, you know, totally wide-eyed character who knows nothing. She's got involved with this man because she has a huge appetite for sex and sex with him in particular because she sees him as being glamorous and charismatic. She's a girl from um, a lower middle class background who's come down from the north, who's educated herself, who's kind of dropped out of her opportunity of going to Oxbridge, actually. She had the opportunity. But that's her fascination with this awful man. She has seen him as being socially superior to her and she kind of wants in on that and that's a large part of why she can't kick it is that he has been her window onto that more upper class world. The whole attitude that Monica has to sex is it's all slightly weird because she she clearly is very drawn to David, um, ends up in his bed but there are a couple of times where he, he makes his comments where he kind of slut shames her in a way. Mm, that's the yeah, phrase exactly. He says something like, well, you didn't seem to be complaining or you enjoyed it at the time. And she says something like, oh, always the perfect gentleman. Yeah, like she's ashamed yeah. of enjoying being with him sexually. Yes. The book obviously has much more room to explore her inner life. So we get a lot more of the sense of actually her cynicism about Gerald in the book, who is now David. Um, so in the book, she kind of comes out with this burning impulse to basically seek him out, to have it out with him. Uh, and also, I want my clothes back and I want the share of the money. If I've done the time, I want my cut. Yeah, very good. So she's actually a much more hard-edged <coughs> character in the book. Um, but also, she's all constantly fighting against what she knows is her, as she sees it, her weakness, which is her susceptibility to sex and the intimacy that comes with that. And bound up with that, in David's case, is this glamour of class. It's the flip side of Stella. I mean, Stella is, is the working class version, is that she's deciding between steady life with a bus conductor and a life of relative luxury, buying flashy earrings and clothes and jewellery on the street. And Monica is the, is the middle class version of that, which is deciding between a steady, boring office job and, you know, maybe going to live in Bermuda or, you know, the south of France and, you know, Muscat. having the proceeds of jewel theft, yes. Stella's a complete open book, isn't she? She's all yeah. her motivations. She's so insecure and every interaction she has with all, with all the other working girls, with, with the two other women, with the, you know, with the potential punters, it's always, and Bob even, it's always slightly defensive, trying to sort of boost her credentials as a woman of the world. Yeah, she, she's a hustler, basically. And, and the thing is, although she's very young, she's much more worldly than the others in that respect, is that she, she knows what she's there for. She knows how she can earn money. She knows what people want her for. She's under no illusions about that. But she will do, she will do immoral things, but she will always find a way of justifying it. So she finds a way of justifying everything that she does that day in terms of, well, it's not doing any harm, and actually it's kind of saving Bob money, it's saving the housekeeping and this and that. So... You know, she she's very kind of streetwise, but she doesn't she doesn't waste any time analysing herself. Whereas poor Monica is just paralysed with uh, self examination. Do you like all three women? 
do you feel sympathy for them, for them all? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, liking them as people is different than liking them as characters. And I think, you know, just just in terms of how they're drawn, they are fabulous characters to watch because they're so distinct. They're so rounded, even in the short time that we have. So we only see them for 24 hours. And yet, you know, we can imagine a whole lifetime for them. The dilemmas that they have are very active dilemmas. And there is a very black and white polarity to the decisions that they make, even in those 24 hours. One more thing I'm going to ask you that requires your knowledge of the book. I wasn't 100% sure as to why it's called Turn the Key Softly. I mean, it's prison. I mean, keys do come into it. There's the prison key. There's also in the climactic scene at the end, which I can't, I don't want to give too much detail, but there's a situation with a key that Monica has. She discovers she has a key, basically. But you said there's more, it's explained more clearly in the book. Yes, it is. And it's right at the end of the book when Monica has her big dilemma. So she finds herself, while she's having that dilemma, because she's educated and a large part of her self-image is to do with her education and how she has kind of pulled herself up and it's a quote it's a misquotation from keats okay so it actually comes from a poem it's it's a sonnet to sleep and even she herself kind of questions whether she's remembered it correctly and she hasn't the actual quotation and i have it here the end of it says save me from curious conscience that still lords its strength for darkness burrowing like a mole turn the key deftly in the oiled wards and seal the hushed casket of my soul And so she turns this over in her head and she does ask herself while she's in this feverish dilemma at the end, is it softly or is it deftly? I'm not sure. But what the poem is actually about is it's to do with actually desiring sleep so that you can be freed from the feverish uh, dilemmas of conscience. Okay. So I think, you know, in a way that does speak to Monica because she knows that she has been drawn into a life of crime and she's trying to resist it. She's trying to turn the key on that old life. The flip side of that is that there is a key which is literally instrumental in her in her liberation at the end. So there are keys at the beginning of the day, there are keys at the end of the day. So that's a nice bookend. And that's the key that actually frees her from her slavery to David. But, but it's key, again, it's a key to Monica's character because yeah. she sees her self-image as being that I'm a more cultured person and I can rise above this. And ironically, David, who is a more upper-class person than her, who has had a much better education, he's actually an old Etonian, which again is you know, topical when you think of people who have had a good education but no morals. Um, I don't know what you're you know, referring I don't know, to. I don't know where we see this in, 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 in modern life. Um, but he has had this upper-class education. He's had all of the advantages that she didn't have. And yet his knowledge of art and literature is much more superficial than hers. So whenever he brings up a cultural reference, it will always be a slightly middle-brow one, whereas she's always aspiring for something higher. That sounds like Johnson. I mean, that sounds like the unnamed person as well, because he's always coming up with, like, crappy Latin phrases. Yes, and also, I mean, even yesterday, invoking himself as Othello without remembering that Othello actually strangled his wife. (laughs) Not not the best comparison, yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think that, that, that portrayal of David in the film and the book is actually very truthful. And we can recognise that character still today, just as much as we can the women. I mean, I think if you were to update this this film today, um, the crimes would be different, but the intrinsic characters of those three women could still be very much the same. In some ways, it feels quite progressive, quite modern in its its treatment of transgressive behaviour, because you'd think in those days, if there's a bad girl like 
the Joan Collins character, Stella, she would normally get her comeuppance. She would normally end up on the wrong side of the tracks because she's been a bad girl. And actually, she doesn't. She, uh, this is a bit of a spoiler, but she does end up happily with Bob, or on the surface appears to be. And Monica, who is the good girl, mm. is seen to have an active sex life in an mm. Un- mm. With, a, with this terrible man. Does that seem odd for its time? It struck me as being I, I quite. Think it, I think of... it must have been really brave for its time because you know you you don't really tend to see that elsewhere. I mean, if you think of comparable things, which which again, you know, you can compare. Yvonne Mitchell was later in um, Yield to the Night. That was a film which sought to kind of foster understanding of how a woman could be brought to that and was instrumental in ending the death penalty. Mm. And yet, even so she is still seen to pay the price because she did get executed. Whereas in this film, you know, they are allowed their, their other chance. What is kind of quite modern about it is it's, it's shown very much as being, we understand how they have arrived at where they are, but what happens next is their choice. Mm. Their social circumstances might, might trap them in practical terms to an extent, but they do have the, the potential to choose themselves out of it as much as they chose themselves into it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think it was a very revolutionary story at the time. And the third character... Yeah, but, Mrs Quilliam. Yeah, yes. she does seem slightly separate from... Even though Monica and Granny are a bit of an, a pair and mm. they seem to exclude... Stella to a certain extent. Yes. We're often comparing Monica with Stella, Stella with Monica, mm, and Granny mm. is separate again from that. And I, I find her story the most moving and most compelling. And I, particularly, there's a scene where she she's just come out of prison. She goes to visit her daughter, who lives in this, uh, you know, a nice new council house, and she's very cold with her. Very gives her a perfunctory kiss on the cheek and said, anyway, you should have told us we could. I'll send you a postcard of that place you live at. And that, I, I just find that absolutely heartbreaking, that scene. Yeah, it is. And again, I think, you know, running through the whole film and book is, is the theme of class and social expectation. Mrs Quilliam, who is very much a kind of working class, you know, what we would consider to be a Cockney character that's recognisable from other works, played by Kathleen Harrison, who, again, by this time was famous for being in the Hug It series of films. Mm. So she has grown up in Shepherd's Bush. She's lived all her life there. She returns back there if she's lucky to find her room still there, which it is, fortunately. Um, but her daughter, again, is aspirational. So she's of the next generation down post-war. She has moved to this new estate. And with it, she is trying to remake herself. So it's all about redemption and how you redeem yourself and how you are, can be upwardly mobile. And part of that for Lily is kind of denying her relationship with her mother, who has fallen in and out of prison all her life and yet has never really done anything cruel or wicked or, or greedy, really. She's just fallen into that because she's afraid of life. And her daughter kind of disowns her. I mean, she will kind of tolerate her, but she won't welcome her particularly. And, and also the sad thing is that her daughter has a daughter and there's potentially a nice relationship there between the granddaughter and grandmother. But the daughter in between doesn't want that yeah. relationship to foster. The granddaughter has been told this fiction that Mrs. Quilliam has been away on holiday in Torquay for her health okay. <laughs> um, rather than in Holloway, not for her health. And we kind of see that there is, again, a potential redemption there is that those two characters at either sides of the generation can bond potentially. And if Mrs. Quilliam is allowed to come back, that will be a redeeming factor for her. But unfortunately, as we see in the film, that's not something that's able to happen ultimately, yeah. which is tragic. And there's um, a very nice scene where uh, Mrs. Quilliam goes to the butcher's 
and he represents the community and she's obviously yeah. loved by the community and he says oh you don't want that rabbit that rubbish old bit of rabbit come and have some yeah. stewing steak and he plunks it on the scale it clearly says one pound and she goes there you go eight ounces so he's obviously undercharging her um, yeah. And I find that quite touching as well, the fact that she's so beloved in the community. Yes, that, that she is beloved. And also, I think, again, that this is where the journalistic background comes in, because I think what's so characterful throughout the film and, and the book that it's based on is that level of detail that we, you know, in theory, you know, if you had to find cuts, you might say, well, we don't necessarily need that scene. But it tells us something about Mrs. Quilliam. It tells us about the way that the community views her. And also it tells us about post-war society that was still living under rationing and that every ounce counted and that you would do your shopping and you had to eke it out for the whole week. And so here's Mrs. Quilliam, who has to count every single penny. And here is Stella, who's going, I'm just going to blow my entire three yeah. quid week's rent on a pair of flashy earrings. Yeah. You know, and that shows the difference in character between those women. But it also shows the values that society operated under. And that, you know, to be respectable, you had to toe the line and count every penny and take your ration book and register properly and, you know, do all the respectable things. And poor Mrs. Quilliam lives in fear of doing the wrong thing every single time she goes out of the door. You know, obviously, we're looking at this through the, the prism of Soho and Soho Bites, because a lot of the action of the film is set directly in Soho. But also, it's just a great London film and London novel because it takes us out from the doors of Holloway. And the line that the prison warder says as he opens the door is, you know, here's London, the greatest city in the world, and it's all yours. And they've been shut away from that. And there they are. And they're kind of overwhelmed by it because it is too big in a way. So Stella gravitates to the small corner of it that she knows best, which is just that handful of streets in Soho. But also we get to see North London. We get to see the grime of Holloway Road, which is, you know, very much unchanged to this day. I live not far from there now. The whole geography in the film and the book is still true today, even down to the bus routes and the tubes that they yeah. take. Yeah, yeah. You know, the locale of Shepherd's Bush, where Granny Quilliam lives, that's very much her patch. And they each have their patch. You know, Monica is very much a Mayfair patch. Um, <laughs> you know, Stella is a Soho patch. Mrs. Quilliam is Shepherd's Bush and Acton. But it's full of atmosphere and detail. They're so clearly drawn that it's, you know, it's a really powerful London novel, I think. There's a tragic event at the end. Mm. which we can't talk about too much. But that's another thing that shocked me. And it's another mm. another thing to do with uh, with Mrs. Quilliam, who has the most devastating story arc in that 12 hours. Mm. Mm. You kind of get a sense of some doom building up, but but there's a you know a bit of playing with your expectations as to who, who is going to be the receiver of the worst doom. But it's certainly the most touching thing. And I think, obviously, if you look at um, critical reception at the time, it was the thing that everybody found most... Um, affecting about yeah. the whole film really and it's part of the moral redemption at the end of all of well at least two of them we can't say much more without going into the details but again I think you know between the book and the film there was a slight rejigging of the order in which things happen to make that moral redemption a bit clearer okay um, but but I think you know you can see the whole film as a journey towards redemption and the and the obstacles in the path of redemption in the, the 2022 version that's coming out this year that you're writing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what what kind of changes will you make? I mean, what, how, what's a twenty first yeah. century version of Stella I, I, I like? I have to say, I, I am very tempted because having read, yeah, having it, gone to it. the source material now, I just love it because there's it's it's all there. It's the structure is there, the characters are there, the the detail is there. It's it's a wonderful source material. The the, the initial dilemma would be: Do you totally update it? In which case, yes, you would have to choose different backgrounds for those women. You would be choosing different crimes, and does that rob it of some of the charm of the post-war? Mm. which for me it 
it probably would. Um, but I think the, the main difference is that you would be able to be a lot more frank about the hard hitting elements, which, which are already there and, and actually written very truthfully, even for 1951. But I think in terms of um, Monica's moral dilemma and, and the fact that, you know, that a lot of her struggle is to do with her own sexual impulses, because she has such self-awareness, um, she knows that that's her downfall and yet still she struggles against it. And, and in the book, that, that is quite um, a polarity, which is a really interesting one, between Monica, who is the good girl, the middle class girl, who has been seduced into a life of crime largely because she can't resist sex. This is what has taken her away from her respectable home in the first place. Um, she's not a virgin when she meets David, but he, he, he preys on that and makes her feel that she's a fallen woman. But, but there's Stella, who is actually a professional streetwalker who actually doesn't like sex. She sees sex entirely in terms of what she can get and how she can use it. And it's entirely a commercial bargain. Hmm. Um, and in the book, that's explored a lot more fully. And I think if you were doing it today, you would bring out those contrasts and, and actually, you know, be able to delve into that kind of dichotomy is that, you know, on the one hand, here is something which which can kind of make you throw everything to the winds and kind of ruin you because you just can't resist it. And on the other hand, it's something that you think other people can't resist. So you can make a fast buck out of it. Mm. Um, and in the middle is Mrs. Quilliam, who's not interested in any of it, but but she's just so afraid of authority that she feels she can't do anything right. At the time of recording, Turn the Key Softly is available to watch on the Talking Pictures TV online catch-up service, TPTV Encore. He won't be there forever, though, so catch it while you can. Thank you to Ming Ho for coming on the podcast, and apologies to you, Ming, for the endless palaver we had to go through just to get to speak. I put links to Ming's website and Twitter, etc., on the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And don't forget to check out Kino Quickies at KinoQuickies.com. If you've enjoyed the programme, I'd be very grateful if you could leave a star rating or a nice review, and it's as straightforward as you can possibly imagine. All you have to do is go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Soho Bites and follow the simple instructions. You can get in touch about anything at all on Twitter, on at Soho, or by email on SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. That's all from me for my COVID isolation. See you next time and bye for now. Bye.